so much for inviting me to come and be your speaker today. I find it an honor and a privilege to be able to share God's word with women. And by the way, sitting up front and listening to you sing, do you know how good you sound? It was beautiful. It really was, right, Robin? Yeah, in our church, I'm usually somewhere between the middle and the back, and you can't really get the full effect of it, but our pastor often tells us, you guys sound absolutely beautiful because he's right in the front, and it does. It sounds really good. And we have a lot to sing about, don't we, for God's faithfulness. And I just want to share with you, yes, uh, my husband is a retired physician. He was in Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Hospital in the emergency room for almost 40 years, retired six years ago, absolutely loves his retirement which means that we get a chance to spend some more time now with those 18, soon to be 20, grandchildren. And when we found out our daughter was having twins, we were all elated. I'm not sure she was when she first found out. She was like, she had to get over the shock of it. We were, yay, yay, and she was, oh no. But it, this will be her number three and four. Her youngest, it will not even be two years old yet when these twins are born, and I will tell you, I am praying that she carries at least two more weeks. I want her to get through Our Lady's Bible study before I'm done teaching that, but um, she was starting to cramp up a little bit, and I got a text from her yesterday, and I'm going, no, this can't happen yet. We have a women's seminar that we're going to today. She seems to be doing fine right now, but she is getting to that very uncomfortable stage. She's ready to deliver. She is at 34 weeks, so we know that if the babies were to be born, now they would be okay. But they're trying desperately to get her to two more weeks. So that's what we are praying, that God will bring these babies to full term for twins, which I've learned is 36 weeks. I have never known that before. So that's what we're praying. Um, and I will tell you that we do get together all of us every year at Christmas and every year we do a beach vacation where everybody chips in and we go to a huge house and I cannot begin to tell you what the noise level is with um so right now there are 18 grandkids the oldest is 15 and they go all the way down to our youngest right now is eight months old so it is quite noisy but it is also wonderful but I will tell you if they've all been to our house when the last one finally leaves, my husband and I give ourselves a high five. Yes, we got through it. And when we get back from vacation, it's like, it is so quiet. This is so nice. Again, so it's funny what you adjust to. But anyway, when I was asked what topic I would like to speak on, that came at a good time because last fall, I taught Our Lady's Bible study and we went through the book of Habakkuk. And I remember telling my husband when we were all done, this would make a wonderful conference, like a three session conference because three chapters in Habakkuk, um, there, it would just be perfect. But what I did was I took nine weeks to get through it. We did a lot of background. We went through the Kings, we went through the history leading up to Habakkuk, and I wish I had the time to do all that again, but I, condensing it into three sessions was not easy, because we did a lot before that, but I do want to take you to a little bit of background before we actually get into Habakkuk. So you're actually not going to be turning to Habakkuk right off the bat. Instead, what I would like you to do is turn to the book of Deuteronomy, because that's where you are going to be turning first in your Bibles. But just hold that place, because we're not going to go there right yet. But I'm going to give you a little bit of background that leads up to the book of Habakkuk. And by the way, um, if you are not familiar with that book, you are going to find some verses and some scripture passages in there that are very familiar to you, and probably the most familiar one to us is Habakkuk 2.4, which is, the righteous shall live by his faith. And we find that repeated three or four times in the New Testament, where Paul actually uses that scripture um, of the righteous living a life by faith. And I 
us now. Because when we look around at the culture that we are living in, for some of you that are my age, and even a little bit younger and older than I am, and I'm 71, but if you, I can remember, I grew up during the Leave it to Beaver era, when everything was just kind of nice and everything seemed to be going well, there was a good, um, the culture was still pretty much God-centered. But there came a time in 1963 when a woman named Madeline Marie O'Hara went to the Supreme Court to have the Bible taken out of the school systems. And I think for my generation, that is where I can see a mark that began the decline of where we actually see our nation today, which is, even though we call ourselves a Christian nation, we do not see God's principles being adhered to. And we're gonna talk about that a little bit as we get into the history of where Israel found herself at the time that Habakkuk wrote the prophecy when God revealed to Habakkuk something that he wanted Habakkuk to share with the nation of Israel. I think you're going to find that you feel a lot like Habakkuk. And what he found where the nation of Israel was at the time was, Lord, why are you doing something about this? You can see that the sin is just rampant. Why are you not doing anything? And I don't know if you have found yourself saying that when you see the changes that have come. And I'm talking about even in the last two to three years, the, the fast decline of where our nation has gone in the public schools, and you see the decline in our cities. And you know, ladies, right now, we are living in what we are seeing happening over in Israel right now, which should break our hearts at what is happening to that nation, which we're going to find that was the nation that God called for them. That's what we're going to look at right now. But as we look at that and we find ourselves in this culture, we may have the question of how do I live a godly life in a culture that is so ungodly? How do I do that? And we're going to find that it is through living a life of faith. We're going to look at the difference between the righteous and the wicked uh, later on. So that's just going to give you a general overview of what we're going to be talking about. But what I want to do first is... And it's, oh, there's the clock right back there. I have to really keep my, I can go forever, so. In fact, somebody probably, when it gets to be 10 o'clock, start waving your hand. They have to do that to the ladies' Bible study. Uh, we actually have child care, and so to free those poor babysitters, we need to end on time. But anyway, I want to give you the, the first heading that I have for you is the state of the nation. And I'm going to give you a little background that's not in your notes, but you do have blank papers in your folders. And there is going to be some scripture that I'm going to be giving you that you're not going to find on your outline, or your outline would have been a book. So um, if you want to feel free to jot down any of these scriptures. But I'm going to give you a little bit of background that's going to lead us up to where we find the book of Habakkuk. It's so important to understand the context, which is why, and this is just another little side trip that I'm going to take for you. But I am a big fan of the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament, especially the book of Genesis, because that gives us our foundation. And when you start at the beginning and you are able to go up through it, things start to fall into place. Things make sense to you. Uh, Psalm 119, I think it's verse 130, says, The unfolding of your word brings light as you unfold God's word. It is going to bring light to you so that by the time you get to the book of Habakkuk, which, to be honest, I can never even pronounce it. I remember Awana teaching my kids the books of the Bible, and it would, Habakkuk was in. Try to remember the word tobacco, and maybe that's how you're going to remember Habakkuk. Trying to think of any way to get them to remember it. But when you put it in context and you start seeing the history of what led up to it, then you get to the book, and it's like, yes, I understand what he's talking about. It just makes God's word so much clearer, and it helps you understand the New Testament. When you get up into the life of Jesus and our doctrine, you will be able to understand that so much clearer when you have a good fund of knowledge in the beginning. We're laying the foundation, and that's what I'm going to do for you right now. 
So I'm not going to take you all the way back to Genesis 1-1, although we did that, didn't we, Robin? When we, but we're not going to have time for that, but I am going to take you to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And this is the call of a man named Abraham. And a lot of this is going to be very familiar to you, and stories that you've grown up with. But it doesn't hurt to remind ourselves. Uh, God's word is living and active, and that's why you'll never get to the bottom of his word. No matter how many times you read it and reread it, there will always be something there for you. So I'm just going to read for you these verses. You can jot down um, the reference. It's Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. God said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this was a promise that God gave to a man named Abraham. And as we look through Genesis, and especially um, in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 17, we see that this is a promise that God has given to Abraham forever. This is a forever promise. Uh, the promise is reaffirmed through a covenant that God made with Abraham that you will find in Genesis 15. And as you read through Genesis 15, you're going to find that this covenant included two things. It was a promise of offspring that would be born to Abraham. God said that your offspring are one day going to be as many as the stars of the sky and as the sands of the sea. And we know pretty much you can't number it. You cannot number that. And, that, and this is to a man who has no children. None. Sarah couldn't have any children, but we know that eventually she did have a son named Isaac who God reaffirmed this promise to. And from Isaac, the offspring of Abraham that is one day going to bless all of the nations, that God is going to raise up a nation through him, is one day going to be blessing all the other nations. It went through Isaac. And then Isaac had Jacob, and then from Jacob we had the 12 sons of Jacob, which made up your 12 tribes of Israel, which is now we start to see the beginning of the nation. Um, we get to the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, and that is where they ended up down in Egypt. There was a famine in the land. We're not going to get, the story of Joseph could be a whole baby seminar in itself, <clears throat> but they, they end up in Egypt by Joseph, because Joseph is now the king, second only to the Pharaoh, and he is able to feed them during this family. Seventy people went down into Egypt, and they were down there for 400 years. And while they were in Egypt, God placed them in a tiny little section of Egypt called Goshen. He was protecting them from the culture of Egypt, because what God is going to be doing is raising up a pure nation. He needs a nation that is going to have God alone as their one true God. Egypt was full of idols and idolatry, but they're going to be down there, and they're going to be there for 400 years. Then we get to the book of Exodus, and we see that God raises up a man named Moses, who is going to be freeing the people and leading them up out of Egypt, out of their bondage, and Moses is going to be the one that is going to take them right to the border of the promised land that God has promised. That was the land, the land of Canaan at that time, but the borders, which are specifically given in Hebrew, or in uh, Genesis chapter 15, the borders of the land, this is the nation of Israel. This is where Israel now stands, and this is going to be the land that God is going to be giving to his people, and this is now where I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 4, and we are going to read verses 1 through 8, because this is what God intended for that nation. By the way, it's through Moses that the law is given, and we talk often about the law, and it's interesting to me that um, some will say that the law no longer applies well, what doesn't apply is the penalty that they had for the law, that at that time, when if they broke the law, they had to offer sacrifices, they had to just do all these ceremonial things. That doesn't, but do you know that when Jesus taught the, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, do you know what he did? 
It wasn't just the law. He expanded on the law, on God's intention, is what Jesus did. The, the, the rules, the commands under the Ten Commandments, these are all still things that we do. The thing is, we can't do it. So we're unable to keep the law. So back then, they had the sacrifice that they would make for their sin. Who do we have? Jesus Christ. That we have 1 John 1, 9, that if any man sin, that we know that we can go to our Heavenly Father who is going to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We have Jesus who paid that price for us. Back then they didn't, but the law was given, and here's why. We're going to read it. If you ever want a summary of it, it's in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, and I'm going to begin reading. And now, O Israel... Listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who hold how fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that his statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? See, they're going to be going into the land of Canaan, which is a polluted land. It tells us in the book of Leviticus that this is where it was the Amorites, the Hittites. It wasn't just the Canaanites. They call it Canaan, but it encompassed people groups. There were about eight people groups that it encompassed that were practicing horrible practices in that land. Child sacrifice was common in that land. Idolatry was rampant in that land. Sexual practices... Go to Leviticus 18, and it will tell you everything that they were doing. This is the land that God is telling the, um, the Israelites that they are going to be going in, and they are going to be destroying it all. They're going to purge the land, and this is the nation where the nation is going to be set up, whose God is the Lord, and this nation is going to be a light to all the other nations are going to be looking at the blessing that God is going to be giving this nation if they follow him. And if they keep his commands and his rules, which are good, they are good for them to keep. This is what his intention was. But I want us to now go to, while you're still in Deuteronomy 4, we're going to look at 9 and 10. This was the warning to them. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, by the way, Horeb is Mount Sinai, and he said, gather the people to me that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. Well, what happened was they were not always teaching their children. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're not going to turn there. But this is where God says to them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. These commandments that I am giving you today, you shall teach diligently to your children. When you rise up, when you walk in the way, when you lie down at night, this was not just a casual thing of, um, once a week I'm going to take my kids to Sunday school and they're going to learn about God. No, this is intentional. This is where they were looking for opportunities. When you rise up, when you walk in the way, you look for every opportunity that you can to be teaching this to your children. You know why? They're going to be surrounded by other nations 
that do not know God's rules. And you know, we know how easy it is to slip. And in fact, we're going to look at that in a little bit. Um, what I'm going to tell you is that after giving them the law, and after God has laid out for them everything that they need to do to obey it, we find that in the book of Joshua, this is when they start entering into the land. And God had told Joshua that they were to destroy all of it. They were not to leave anything alive. But when you go through, especially at the beginning of the book of Judges, you're going to see it kind of rehearses the conquest of the land of Canaan. And as they went in, it would say they destroyed, but not completely. And when another tribe, um, all the tribes were named after the sons of Jacob, when another tribe went in, they destroyed what they were told to destroy, but not completely. So they left in the land these seeds of sin, is what was left in the land. And what you find in the book of Judges, chapter 2, I think it's chapter 2 or chapter 3, what it says is that after Joshua died, the whole time Joshua was living, they, they were still following the law. But when Joshua died, it said there rose up a generation that did not know the Lord. And that, to me, is alarming. Because what does that tell us? It only takes one generation for us not telling our children and teaching our children God's commands in one generation. They went to where they forsook the Lord. And in fact, the whole book of Judges is kind of an up and down uh, book where we find that the people forsook the Lord. They started to worship idols. They started to follow the customs of the people of the land. Then God would discipline them. He would bring in another nation to enslave them, they would get to the point where they couldn't take it anymore. They would cry out to God. And you know what? Over and over again, God in his mercy heard them. And he would then raise up a judge. The judge would get them back on track with the Lord so they would be on track. This went on for a period of almost 360 years. They would get that generation back on track, but then as soon as that judge would die, they would go right back. They would slip it. It was just a constant up and down throughout the book of Judges until they started with kings. And we're not going to get, we won't go into all that, but there are some things that I want to tell you about the kings. And that is that when Israel began to have a king, a lot of us get to, we remember the story in Samuel where they were clamoring for a king. And what is that? I just want somebody to tell me, what do you remember about what we, what do you remember about them wanting a king? What was Samuel's heart? What, what are the things that you think about? They wanted to be like the people they had done this before. They wanted kings like everybody else. They wanted to be like all the other nations. That's right. And God didn't want them to be like all the other nations, did he? But, you know, there's something else that I find interesting. If you go to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, God plans for a king. And I found this to be interesting because I had always thought, oh, man, they weren't supposed to have a king. You know, Samuel was regretting this, and they weren't to have a king. Do you know that God had already planned for them to have a king? And that was back when Moses was still writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses was still alive. And in chapter 17, in fact, I will read this to you. You don't need to turn to it. I will, because I have it all underlined in my Bible, because I found it very surprising. It says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses. It just goes on and on to give um, instructions for the king. So, the, And actually one of them was when a new king was put into position as king, he was to write out the entire book of the law, which was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he was to read it 
constantly. This is what would keep the king as a good leader. This is what he was supposed to do as a king. So God had intended that there was going to be, or planned for it, that there was going to be a king way back. And so what we find is that when they finally, after the book of Judges, and then you had Samuel was the last judge, but they said, we want a king, we want a king. And so they did. And we have what we, in, so in the nation of Israel, they started out with, and we're going to call that the United Kingdom, which was Saul was the first king. He had a bad end. David was the second king, and we find out that David was a man after God's own heart. And for the most part, David served the Lord with all of his heart, and the nation thrived under David. And then Solomon was the next king under after David, and it was still the United Kingdom. But what happened was Solomon did not end well. And we found out that Solomon took many wives, and their wives led him into idolatry. To the point where Solomon was actually setting up shrines for his wives, 300 of them, for them, and then 700 concubines. I cannot imagine, and I don't think my husband could imagine that either, in all of his, yes, you could not imagine this. But he would say, and by the way, they were to make treaties. A lot of Solomon's wives were just treaties that he made with other nations that they would give away. That somehow sealed the deal back then, that they would stay aligned with this nation. But Solomon had a son named Rehoboam that followed. Oh, one thing that I need to tell you also, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, but when David was king, God made a covenant with David. We call it the Davidic covenant. And that was that God said to David, I am going to raise up your offspring, and there shall always be someone from your offspring who is going to sit on the throne. Always. That, this is a forever covenant that God made with David. And right now, you don't really see a king in Israel. But one day, who is of the offspring of David, who we learn is going to rule with righteousness and justice? Who's it going to be? It's going to be Christ. It's going to be Jesus Christ. We have yet to see the fulfillment of that prophecy um, come through. But yes, this is one of God's promises, that that is going to happen. But to get back to Rehoboam, he was not a real good king because he decided that he was going to be heavy-handed on the people. And he was going to tax them. And he was going to basically flaunt his own power. He liked doing this. Well, we all know what will happen with a leader that wants to do that. It wasn't long before there was a militia that rose up, and they got another guy who basically had served under David. His name was Jeroboam. He had been in the army. And they got Jeroboam, and they said, we cannot take the oppression that Rehoboam is doing. We need to have a militia. We need to unseat him. So what happened was Jeroboam came in. There was a civil war, and it split the country. And you now have what we call the southern kingdom, which was, this is where the line of David is going to stay intact. Um, the southern kingdom was Judah, and that was what Rehoboam had. Jeroboam took the northern kingdom. Ten tribes went with Jeroboam. Two tribes stayed with Rehoboam. Don't you wish their names had been a little bit different because it's so hard to remember and keep track of what their names are. But when Jeroboam took the ten tribes, we find out not long after that he started to fear that his people were going to want to go back to the southern kingdom, which is where Jerusalem was. By the way, Jerusalem was the city that had, that, that housed where the Ark of the Covenant was. The temple that Solomon had built was in Jerusalem. This was the center of the people's worship. And Jeroboam started thinking, you know what? This is where they worship. They're going to start going back and worshiping, and I'm going to lose my kingdom. So what did he do? He decided to set up places where the people could worship, and he made two golden calves. Can you imagine? And one he put in well, the northern kingdom, he picked the top spot, the bottom spot, so that the people could go there and worship golden calves. Idolatry. Idolatry. 
And what you're going to find is as you now go through the kings and you go from, you know, we've, we've gone um, Saul, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and then we're going to start going, if you go through the kings of the southern of Judah, what you're going to find is that out of those kings, they had 20 altogether. And out of those 20 kings, seven of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed in all the ways of their father David. Thirteen did not. Thirteen led them astray into idolatry. But when these seven good kings, when they came to power and they were good, God blessed. And the nation Judah was doing well. Of the northern kingdom, the Jeroboam had, when you start going through the kings, they also had 20 kings. Not one did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And in fact, you will find time and again that it will say that they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they followed in the ways of their father Jeroboam, which was idolatry. And when you see that, that they followed in the ways of Jeroboam, all you have to do is go back and look what the sin of Jeroboam was. And it was leading the people into idolatry. <coughs> so the third point that I have here is the evolution of the nation. And this is now what is going to take us up to Habakkuk. And I'm going to, um, what I would like you to do is just look. I think, do I have it typed out? I, I have two outlines here. I have your outline and my outline. So I'm just going to read what I have on mine. I think it follows yours pretty good. But Jeremiah 2.13 they fell into idolatry. It says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can have no water. And we're going to look later on in our third session. I think it's up there. Maybe it's our, no, it's our second session. We're going to look more closely at idolatry. And we're going to look at the consequences of idolatry. But this is what is now starting to characterize the nation. And I also want to clarify that we are now looking basically at the southern kingdom. We are looking at Judah. The nation of Israel, with their 20 bad kings, they collapsed, which God had said was going to happen to them if they forsook him. They collapsed. The Assyrian Empire came in and overtook them, so we're no longer dealing with the northern kingdom. But the southern kingdom, because they had seven righteous kings, they're still going. But we're going to find that it's not forever. They also are going to end up in the same sin as, as the northern kingdom where they were. But idolatry is now part of the character of the nation. I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. And we are going to look at verses 23 to 28. Beginning with, with verse 23. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who could, this is her idolatry. She was passionately going. Israel, Judah, was going after idols. It wasn't that she was being passive and... You know, they just kind of came to her, and she just couldn't resist. No, she was pursuing. She's pursuing idolatry. Um, it says, none who seek her need weary themselves. In her mouth, they, in her month, they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. So they just thought this is their life. They're going to be chasing after idolatry. This is the way it is. This is what idolatry will do to us sometimes when we don't even realize it. That we are actually, when we are pursuing things other than God, and we will talk about that a little later. They also were characterized by false prophets. Uh, Jeremiah 12, verses 12 and 13 says, They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing. No disease will come upon us, nor shall we see the sword of famine. The prophets will become wind. The word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. And basically, this is what was happening. Um, Jeremiah was prophesying at the same time that Habakkuk was, and he was prophesying against their idolatry. And they had false prophets that were coming up and saying, don't listen to him. 
He doesn't know what he's talking about. Nothing's going to happen. We can continue in our sin. We're fine. So these were the false prophets. There also was an absence of truth going on in the nation. Jeremiah 9.3 says, They bend their tongues like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil. They do not know me, says the Lord. Boy, does this ring a bell? Have you watched the news lately? And it's not something that, you know, you can get pretty depressed watching it. But when there are things that are proven that evil has been done, and then nothing is done about it, they will even come out and say, um, directors of our FBI and others, that yes, we found that they were guilty of that. But what happens? Nothing. And it's like the truth doesn't even matter anymore. I, that's one of the things that I will say to my husband often when we are listening. By the way, if you hear the comments that go on between us while we're watching. And it's like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, they're guilty. And it's like they're going to be proven guilty, but it's not going to matter. It doesn't matter. Nothing's going to be done about it anyway. This seems to be the trend in our country today. There is not any... What is being done about the violence and the crime that's being done in our cities? We, are, we so far are so blessed to be in small towns. But I want to tell you, you know what just happened in a small town? No, what happened? Yes! When that happened, it's like you just start wondering. But in the, in the cities, what happens? They get a little slap on the hand, and then that's it. That's all that happens. And it makes you think, where is justice? Where is love? This is what we're going to find that Habakkuk was struggling with. And there was also a lot of social injustice that was going on. There was a lot of bribery where people were bribing the leaders so that when it got time to bring cases to court, the leaders were taking a bribe and they were not doing the justice that they should have been done. There was extortion going on, extortion of the poor. All of this is going on in God's chosen nation, the nation that we saw what God intended, that was going to be obeying and keeping the rules of God. And this is what was going to be a light to the other nations. But you know what? They wanted a king to be like the other nations, and guess what? They're becoming just like the other nations. So, Roman numeral number three in this part, when a nation forsakes the Lord, and I want you to turn with me to Psalm chapter nine. And we are going to read 15 through 20. This is what David penned. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forgot God. This is what is going to be the end of these nations. They are going to end up falling when they forsake the Lord. This is what happens. Um, if you keep going, let me keep reading. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. And what we are going to find as we continue into Habakkuk is that this is exactly what is going to happen. But we're going to find that God is going to first judge his own. It is going to be Israel that is going to be judged. And what does it tell us in 2 Peter? That when God begins judgment, he's going to begin with his own household. And if it's going to be Frightful, what is it going to be for those that don't know the Lord when they get his judgment? We're going to see later that when we are gods, we get disciplined, but we're not destroyed. There are going to be, someday, the destruction of the wicked. Uh, what I want to do next is, I think, I'm looking at the time, so we're just, I gave you, um, actually, I think that's all I gave you there. I do want to read one more Verse, and then we're going to go into, we're finally going to get to Habakkuk with about five minutes left. But um, what Jeremiah 2.19 says, and you can just jot this as a, as a reference, but it says your evil 
will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. And so my question is, what do you do when you find yourself in a culture that has forsaken God? Well, we're going to find that this is exactly where Habakkuk is. So now I would like you to turn. Finally, we are going to get to this beautiful book of Habakkuk. I think you're going to end up loving this book by the time we are done. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about the book. It's a small book found between Nahum. Anybody ever read through Nahum? If you're not on a Bible reading through the year, you probably haven't. <laughs> and Zephaniah, that's where it's found. It was written, the man Habakkuk was a priest turned prophet. God called him to be a prophet. And you know what? Um, this is something that, that I thought about, but it was not easy to be a prophet. I think, I'm wondering what Habakkuk thought. You know, here he's probably, he's got his job, he's a priest, and then God is going to call him to be a prophet. You know what happened to the prophets? Jeremiah, uh, weren't they? Right now in our ladies' Bible study, we are going through the book of Lamentations. And of course, going through that, we are reading Jeremiah. The persecution that that poor man went through. He wasn't allowed to take a wife. And he prophesied he was thrown in a cistern. They tried to beat him to death. They, all these things they tried to do to him. Isaiah was one that tradition has eventually was sawn in two. They killed the prophets. They didn't want to hear him. And I'm wondering if, um, you know... Habakkuk thinking, oh, Jeremiah was still around, I think, when Habakkuk was prophesying, but those others that he probably had heard of, like, really, you want me to be a prophet? But he was called to be a prophet. And he prophesied, along with his contemporaries, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Nahum, and Zephaniah. And this all was around 700 B.C. to 690 B.C. that he prophesied. And he lived through the reigns of King Josiah, good king, King Jehoaz, bad king, and Jehoiakim, bad king. And he prophesied through Jehoiakim's reign, and I'm telling you, if he lived through the reign of Josiah, his heart had to grieve because Josiah was a good, good king. He probably was the best king after David. And Josiah was good, and there were so many reforms that were done under Josiah. The temple was repaired. They found the law. And when Josiah found the law, it says that he sat in dust and ashes and repented because he realized how far the nation had come from the law. So Habakkuk would remember this because he lived during the time of Josiah and the nation was doing well. But when Josiah was succeeded by Jehoaz and then Jehoiakim, it turned its back again and forsook the Lord. And we're going to find that this, is, this just sickens the man Habakkuk. Um, there are two events that are taking place during this time. There is internal moral decay, which we just were talking about, where the nation had gone. And there was also an international crisis happening, the rise of the Babylonian Empire and its threat to invade Judah. So these two major things are going on right now. So the people are getting a little bit nervous. They're, you know, it's kind of like we are when we see um, maybe... Russia's invading Ukraine. You know, what's happening here? China looks like, you know, what's happening? Is there a rising, is there a rising another country that threatens us? We do. We live in that. That's the kind of thing that we are living with. But we are going to now read. Let's look at Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And I'm going to quickly get through this. It says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth forth perverted. And what I want to stress to you right now is this is a righteous man who is looking at the sin. 
And what did it do to him? As he, it's, I entitled it Sin Viewed from the Lens of a Righteous Eye. A righteous man looking at sin. And the note that I have is that the darkness of sin is exposed in the light of God's character. And we see that in Exodus chapter 32, that story when Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the law. And while he was up there for 40 days, the people that were left down started thinking that he's not going to come back. So they had Aaron. Um, well, you know, everything was thrown in a fire and up came his calf. Of course, they didn't do it. It was just how it came. But anyway, and I'm thinking, that's, that's um, sarcastic. <laughs> they knew exactly what they were doing. But anyway, when Moses saw this, when he was coming down the mountain with Joshua, with the tablets of stone, and he heard that, revelry going on because it was more than just the worship of a golden calf. It says they were reveling. And that has a connotation of perversion when you hear that. This is all the things that they were doing, prostituting themselves. It was just horrible. And when Moses heard that and saw that, he became so angry that he took those stone tablets and he this was, a, you know, Moses had just spent 40 days and nights in the very presence of God. And he came down to this. He could not stomach it. What was happening? And Ephesians 5, 11 through 13 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And my question to you is how, and to me, how do we view sin? What is our reaction when we see flagrant sinful behavior going on? Have we become so accustomed to it that it doesn't even, yeah, well, that's our culture. We don't agree with it. We know it's wrong, but you know what? That's just our culture. This is the way it is. One day God will judge it. But do we hate it? I, this is for me too. Because you know what? We find that we can become so passive when sin is going on. And when that's happening, when we, if believers become passive, what is going to happen? You know, right now, we are the salt that is in the earth right now. We are the salt that should be working to preserve some form of godliness in our culture. Are we doing it? Are we? And I'm, I'm saying, I, this is to myself also. Um, point two under there, our perception of sin is directly correlated with our knowledge and understanding of the character of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is our sanctification, that when we become believers, as we get to know the Lord, we are becoming more like Christ. We should be. And that isn't going to happen if we are not in the Word. How are we going to know what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to act? How are we going to know that if we don't have our noses in the Word of God? We need to because that is then as we do that, we're going to get, get the mind of Jesus. It tells us that in Philippians. But we're not going to get the mind of Jesus if we don't know what Jesus thought and what Jesus did. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Psalm 7.11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Do we feel indignation when we see Things that are going on. When we look at our schools, I was just telling Robin, they just came out with a statistic. In our own school district in Wellsboro, they actually did a survey. 30% of the kids stated, we're not sure what sex we are. 30% in Wellsboro, which is a tiny little school district, our children are becoming so confused with this outlandish stuff that's going on now. Look what we're doing to the children. You know what Jesus said? It would be better than a millstone be held around somebody's neck than you should cause one of these little ones to stumble. What are we doing with that? When we hear that, is that making us sick? It should. It should.
should make us sick to our stomachs when we see. It should make us hate it. Let's look specifically at verses 2 and 4. Habakkuk's first dilemma is that he is asking some questions. Why does God do something about all that is going on? Why is he not judging his people like he should? He was bewildered, and his bewilderment are revealed by his questions. How long must I continue to cry to you? Why don't you hear me? Why don't you rescue the innocent from the violence of the wicked? And why do I see obvious sin and grieve? And you, who have holy and pure eyes, tolerate it. Does it seem to you sometimes like God is tolerated? Do you ever find yourself saying, Lord, come quickly. Just judge. This needs to be judged. Well, you, you're in good company. Because Habakkuk thought the same thing. Jeremiah, the prophet, thought the same thing. And what he said, and his question was, what God had said he would do, which was that God would judge. God said he would discipline his people, but Jeremiah, we're not going to turn to that right now because we don't have time. But he's basically asking the same question. Why, God, aren't you dealing with all of this sin? The paralyzed law, the law is paralyzed. Verse 3. Or four. This is what Habakkuk sees, and Jeremiah saw the same thing. He said in Jeremiah 7, 28, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. And when truth perishes, I'm going to give you Pilate's question to Jesus in John 18, 38. Pilate looked right at Jesus, right at truth himself, itself. And he said, what is truth? And I'm going to give you a definition of truth. This is Merriam-Webster's definition, by the way. Truth is absolute, objective, and universal. It can be counted on because it is consistent and always. So truth is something, it's true. You know what? When a baby is born... There is no questioning if it's a girl or a boy, is it? What's the truth? It's, <laughs> this is crazy. The truth is right there. It's right there. It is absolute. It is always. And it originates with God. John 17, 17 says, your word is truth. Psalm 116, or 119, verse 160 says, the sum of your word is truth. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, every word of God is true. But, and I got this, I was reading an article by a guy named um, Douglas Gruthis, I think that's how he pronounces his name, from the Gospel Coalition. And he came up with a little article that he entitled Truth Decay, which I thought was pretty catchy. And he defined it as a cultural condition in which the very idea of absolute, objective, and universal is no longer meaningful and even held in contempt. You know what? If we go to the truth, what are we called? Racist. They're fanatics. They're that's, that's what it is anymore. And not just this even applies to unbelievers who at least have the same common sense to know that this stuff is crazy. But this is what they do. They just stay that they don't want to hear it. And we are called racist if we bring anything that has to do with the truth. So what I have in point A is when a people, society, a nation turn their back on God's word, which is the embodiment of truth, it is no longer governed by truth, but by the deceived and desperately wicked heart. And the result, deterioration and decay, and we are not going to turn there, but sometime go to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and it gives you the progression of what Sin, what this decay of abandoning the truth, where it begins. And what you find is it begins with suppressing the truth of God. Because it tells us in Romans 18 that creation itself screams out that God has actually given us his divine nature and has turned the truth, the things that he made. So that when you look at what has been made, it is obvious that there is a creator. Someone or Psalm 19 
speech and night after night reveals knowledge. There is no language where its voice is not heard. You don't even need a voice to tell. All you have to do is look at what God has made. But what has man done? Suppressed the truth. And that's a willful thing. That's a suppressing of the truth. Because what does suppress mean? You deliberately stop it from happening. And when man suppresses the truth, just read through Romans 18, or Romans 1, starting with verse 18. I have the reference for you here, but it just shows the natural decline of what's going to happen when man suppresses the truth. So what happened was that we see with Habakkuk is he developed a nearsighted viewpoint and he started to focus on the circumstances, which is leading him to despair. And you see that in the, in the last um, part of verse 4, the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And so he is now, and I'm going to close with this. I'm not going to have, I'm already over my time. So I am going to close with this. But what I want to tell you is that when you get to that point where you feel like you are in despair over what is going on, I want to tell you what you can count on, and that's the word of God, so that you don't get to the point where you say, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Lamentations 3, 19 and 20 says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. And the psalmist in Psalm 73, 21 and 20, oh, I'm sorry, I'm giving you what happens when you are embittered. I'm not giving you the answer here. But the answer you will find in Psalm 73, and this is what I'm going to close on. I want you to turn to Psalm 73. And we're going to look at how you can get a good perspective. And what I'm going to start with you is, we already read part of the part of the chapter that he, he was bitter, or the psalm, I didn't actually, I read to you Lamentations. But in Psalm 73, the psalmist, who was a son of Asaph, is totally obsessing over the fact that it looks like the wicked are just getting richer. It seems like nothing goes wrong for them. It seems like everything is fine for them. When here I have tried to walk with the Lord, but you know what? When we walk with the Lord, we are going to get, we're going to feel pain, aren't we, when we see the wickedness that's going on. But he was, he couldn't get this. You know, why is it that it seems like the wicked are thriving, and yet those that follow you are not? And here's what happens to him. And I called it, when you enter the sanctuary. And he says, in verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, and I'm in Psalm 73, it seemed to be a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. Go down to verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, look at the, he's now in a state of worship. Entering the sanctuary is when you're entering into worship, where you are now acknowledging who the one true God is. And he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Look at verse 28. For me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. And I think that is where we are going to quit. You have this. You can look at it. I, need to, I will touch on this dilemma. So bring this outline back with you. The next one isn't quite as long. So bring your outline back, and we'll try to finish that up. But for right now, what I want to do is just conclude with prayer. So, Father, I just thank you so much for this time that we've had to look into your word and, and to learn things and to learn principles that we are going to be looking uh, more closely through the life of Habakkuk. Thank you. 
for calling that man to be a prophet and that he was obedient. We just ask these things in your name.